Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 25, The Seer Overheard. The fact that Harry Potter was going out with Ginny Weasley seemed to interest a great number of people, most of them girls. Yet Harry found himself newly and happily impervious to gossip over the next few weeks. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, in the great city of Vienna, Austria, they have one of the most delectable treats with the most disgusting names. <laughs> have you had Mozart's balls? <laughs> Mozart kugeln. They are delicious. They have marzipan on the inside and chocolate on the outside. And once you start having one, it's like the end of your day because you're just going to roll around in Mozart balls <laughs> for the rest of your life. So in Vienna, you can get Mozart's balls, but you can also attend one of our best named local groups. Lexio de Vienna. I mean, come on. That's so good. It's run by Oscar Hartlieb. And if you want to join Oscar in Vienna, Austria, you can do that by going to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups or join any of the 68 local groups around the world. It's amazing. We all know that travel can be stressful. Recently, Sean and I were traveling to a friend's wedding in Charlottesville, Virginia, We, like so many smaller airports, you have to kind of fly through a bigger airport to get to a smaller airport. So we were flying through Atlanta in Georgia. And we were flying in the evening and often planes as the day progresses, you know, a little delay will turn into a bigger delay, will affect the flight afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. And so that had happened to us. And so our flight into Atlanta was just under an hour or so delayed, which meant that we had 17 minutes to make our connection. I had already done that thing where I was getting up in the airplane and talking to the people around me to be like, I'm so sorry, we have to catch a connecting flight. Do you mind if we step out? And they were like, well, actually, we're on the same plane. So we kind of formed a team of about five or six people. And we were ready. As soon as we were allowed to disembark, off we went, jackets half put on, run, 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 run. And you have to run across the whole airport to get to the connecting gate. And I already kind of knew, like, this is very, very tight, right? I don't think we're going to make it. But our team was a team and we were going to make it. And so as we went down the last escalator around the corner, there we saw a closed door. We couldn't get on the flight. And everyone was exhausted from this run. We'd been, you know, super tense for the whole last three hours. And of the kind of five or six people with me and Sean, all of them kind of exploded into 
railing at the one person, you know, the last staff person who was still there, being like, please, we have to get on the flight. We can see the plane is still there. Like, just open the door. You know, and very understandably, the plane attendant was like, I'm sorry, the flight has closed. I'm sorry, it's not possible. And I was like, okay, I'm really frustrated that we're going to miss this because it means we missed the last flight to this place. We can't get through to the wedding in the time that we wanted to. But is this going to help? And I was like, no, it's not. So I just went up and I was like, hello, good evening. You know, while everyone around me was shouting, I was like, I put on my best English accent. And I just said, you know, I'm so sorry. Uh, Obviously, it's frustrating that we couldn't get there. Can you tell us what other flights are there in that general direction? And because I was so smart, if I say so myself, (laughs) we got the last two seats on a flight to Richmond an hour later and were able to rent a car and still get to the wedding in time. And I was thinking about that experience as we were reading this chapter through indignation, because I just remember the anger and the screaming and the shouting from everyone around me was an expression of what I felt too. I was really indignant that the plane was still there, right? All they had to do was open the door. Why didn't they hold this? There were at least five or six people from our plane who are now just waiting there. It was frustrating, but it wasn't useful. And so I'm really interested in, can indignation be useful or is it always a way of muddying waters that otherwise would allow you to see clearly and get a different route to the wedding that you're going to. I will defend indignation till the day I die. It is my favorite unhealthy emotion. I love feeling indignant. You surprise me with zero (laughs) percent. I guess what I actually mean is that I do think indignation helps because at the heart of feeling indignant is a sense of things not being fair. And I think pointing out when things are unfair, sometimes we feel that in our bones before we're able to articulate the why. And I I think that you were absolutely wise and strategic in your response in that moment. And I certainly think being rude to service employees is almost always a bad strategy. But the indignation is not the problem. Yeah, that's a good point. It's more about what you do with it that is important. Well, let's see how that plays out in this chapter. And just to remind you what happens in this chapter, we have a little 30-second recap. And Vanessa, this week, it's your turn to go first. 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Um, so Ginny and Harry are like a fish together and everybody's talking about it all the time. And Ron is like, I can't believe that I'm letting you be together. And Jenny is like, let. And then Hermione is like, I still think maybe the prince could be a girl. And Harry's like, no way. And then Harry gets called up to Dumbledore's office and he runs into a very sad Trelawney who's just been kicked out of the room of requirement and has all of these sherry bottles. And then he goes to Dumbledore's office and he's overheard that Snape knew about his parents and that, um, and then they go off, they operate to fight it, get a horcrux. I skipped an important scene. I'll fill it in for you. Thank you. On your mark, get set, go. So all those things happen and Harry is meeting with Dumbledore and Harry's like this mix of like rage that Dumbledore is the one who's hired Snape and all this time Snape is the one who made his parents die and then Dumbledore's like no but you have to think about it this way and Harry's like mm, mm, and like holding his feelings and then he and Dumbledore's like enough now go get your cloak and we're going so Harry runs tells Hermione and Ron all about it and has and says like you have to protect the castle because Snape has probably told everyone and the order won't be here and it's bad 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 and um, then they apparate together with Harry and his cloak Vanessa, there's one more thing that we should say, which is that Trelawney meets someone in the room of requirement, right? She gets kind of pushed out and Harry's like, oh my God, it's Draco. And Trelawney's like, well, I asked, but no one told me. (laughs) 
Which actually, I feel like that micro scene is a great example of indignation. Yes. I think that Harry acts like a real twerp toward Trelawney in this moment. Really? Trelawney is clearly in distress. She's been caught in a really compromising situation in which she's trying to hide evidence of a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. She's in like a really vulnerable moment. She's just been shouted at. And Harry can tell she's in distress. And then there are a couple of times when he just can't help but take little jibes at her and make comments like, oh, but couldn't you just know who it was? And shouldn't you have been able to guess that there was someone in the room of requirement? At first, I was like, Harry, why are you being such a jerk? And then I was like, oh, he's still indignant about all of the ways the Trelawney was awful to him. Mm. And Trelawney then says, like, you weren't a seer, but you were such a good object. Yeah, like a subject for my theories and my readings, which is not a pleasant thing to say. Right. That was the moment where I snapped out of compassion for Trelawney mode and more was like, oh, Harry's not being a twerp. He's being indignant. He is like, you walk around treating me like an object, you know, preaching about how great of a seer you are. And couldn't you have just seen your way through it? Now you want compassion? It turned from a moment where I thought he was being a jerk to, actually, this is righteous indignation. Yeah, because it's not just that she's supposed to be good at reading the signs, whether it's tea leaves or stars or whatever. Like, she claims that very, very actively all the time and uses that to defend herself and is really rude about forensic. I mean, she calls him the nag, the horse, all these really nasty ways of describing her colleague. And yet then in a moment where there's an unidentifiable voice in in a mystery that Harry has been trying to solve for a long time. I mean, this is the moment where I really saw indignation is that she says, how dare you to this voice in the room of requirement who kind of attacks her and pushes her out. I feel like really she's indignant both at that voice, at Firenze, at the fact that she's been put in this position, at Dumbledore, because she says, you know, Dumbledore has asked me not to come and share my theories with him anymore. So I feel like she's in this very defensive place, which... I think defensiveness and indignation feel like they're connected as well. That's interesting. I don't know if I would call her position as indignant. Indignant to me, I mean, the reason that the expression is righteous indignation is because I do think it comes from a sense of having been treated unfairly. Mm. And I think that she, rather than being indignant, is ashamed. And she's constantly defending her, like, I have the sight, my great-great-grandmother, that doesn't seem indignant to me. That seems more vulnerable than indignant. Yeah, I think there's something about indignation and not necessarily weakness, but being in the weaker position that's related. I'm just thinking about when you're a passenger on a plane, like you don't have control. And indignant anger or righteous indignation Sometimes it's like our only outlet. And maybe it was because I I fly more often for work that I was like, well, if I speak to these people now, I might get another flight to a different destination. It might be that the other passengers were like, all my other options are gone. So my only, the only response I have left is just to be angry or to be aggressive. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that there's something about like, how much power do you feel you have? Right. Or they needed to fly somewhere that wasn't drivable, right? Like, or couldn't afford to rent a car. Right. Right. I'm reading this book right now called Wilmington's Lie, which is about the vote being actively suppressed against African-Americans in Wilmington, North Carolina. And just, you know, 
it feels like the only option that people had was indignation, right? Like you were threatened with death and people were lynched and the only feeling you could have was indignation. So I guess I think that there's something dignified about indignation in that you are allowing yourself to stay angry in the face of it being unfair rather than taking it. You are staying mad. Absolutely. Yeah, I've still been amazed at learning about Reconstruction, that period after the Civil War, where actually there was way more representation of Black civic leaders and elected leaders, especially in the South, than than there was first century afterward. And, you know, really makes you rethink this sense of like endless progress that we're moving from one happy thing to another, which honestly is represented in the wizarding world as well, this kind of cyclical nature of Voldemort being gone, Voldemort coming back, a sense of safety and progress, and then suddenly that being interrupted by, you know, a new movement of evil, honestly. Indignation is just something that I've given a lot of thought to in my personal life, because I am the person at the airline being like, you are controlling my body unfairly. How dare you? And especially when someone in a uniform says to me, I'm sorry, we can't. I'm like, no, you can. You are choosing not to. It is so important to me in a way that I find obnoxious in myself to like get them to admit like you could, (laughs) right? If I was Tom Cruise, you'd figure out how to get that door (laughs) open. And like, I'm not Tom Cruise and we can both acknowledge that. But just like living in the headspace that I grew up in, indignation, it is the response I want to have first when I feel as though anybody is trying to take away power that is rightfully mine. And then whether or not I rightfully own that power, I also don't want to be the white lady on the phone who's like, let me talk to your manager. Right. But what I hear so much in your description of what indignation is about, it's about not being bamboozled and tricked and put in dangerous situations, which if you had known, you would never have consented to. And that's why I think it's so powerful, because to get to the truth, sometimes we do need to be indignant. Power doesn't give anything away freely. That's a truth. So... I'm just I'm thinking so much about Hermione in all of this, because throughout the book, she has been so frustrated at Harry using this potions book. And so it's fascinating to me that in this chapter, we see her spending more time trying to figure out who this was. And she ends up with this name, Eileen Prince. And I feel like she's strategically using her indignation, right? Because she she has tried to argue with him. And now she's like, okay, that didn't work. I'm going to try and prove to you what the truth is so that you get it into your pea brain not to trust this thing because you just nearly killed another student. Which I think that the strategy piece is so important. And I think that that question, like you were also indignant about what happened on that flight and you chose a strategy. And that is a really interesting move. Rather, I let myself get completely sucked in by my indignation and it is my strategy. Like, letting people know is my only strategy. Whereas I do think that I'm being invited by your story to be like, okay, I feel indignant. Now, what is the right thing to do in the face of this? And I think for me, it's so interesting, Vanessa, because my instinct is usually to be more subservient if I'm navigating an authoritative system. And that's also risky, right? So I also have to really interrogate that sense of like, oh, if I just stay quiet, then things will be okay. Because like, sometimes they're really not. 
And we see that in the text. I mean, one of the really important moments is when Ron says to Ginny and Harry, well, you you know, Ginny, you still have my permission. And Ginny's like, your permission, right? Like, that's a really important moment to be publicly indignant and be like, Ron, no, that is ridiculous. I know better. You know better. Like, no. So that, that I really like that, that sometimes you do need to publicly push back and say, no, this is wrong, indignantly. Like, that. that's an important part of having dignity. And then I think we see an even further example of that in that same sort of tete-a-tete, which is then Ron is like, just don't, like, make out in public. And Ginny is like, you hypocrite. (laughs) And I do think hypocrisy is one of the, like, great causes of indignation. (laughs) Yes. Right? And, like, flying is a great example of this, of, like, flights are allowed to be as late as they want to be and not apologize. But if you're 10 minutes late, five minutes late for a flight, (laughs) they shut the door and oh, well. Right? And there is something about power when you feel as though someone is trying to take away power from you that is rightfully yours. So let's go to maybe the most important demonstration of indignation in this whole chapter, which is when Harry discovers that when Trelawney was having her prophecy, which has totally shaped his life, which led to his parents getting killed, while Dumbledore was interviewing her, Snape was standing outside and heard half of it and then goes to Voldemort and tells him, and that sets the whole story in motion. And Harry is beside himself with anger at Dumbledore and is basically saying, how dare you? How dare you have hired this man when you know what he did and now you say that you still trust him? Like, Harry is just beyond bewildered and angry. Like, he's betrayed, right? Like, that's when I feel indignant is when I'm betrayed. I I just really felt for him here. Yeah, I mean, it's also that he has, like, Snape, as we find out in this chapter, is in the middle of, like, gleefully punishing Harry, like, making his detentions last longer and longer and, like, sort of winking at the fact, like, you could be down by the lake making out with Ginny and instead you're here with me. And just Harry has never trusted Snape. Harry has always known that there was something suspicious about Snape and that, like, everything has been validated in this moment. Everything, like, on his Draco front has been validated and everything on his Snape front has been validated. He's like, everybody has been double-talking at me about these two people. And, like, stop it. I'm right. And I think that, yeah, I mean, nothing can cause more of a sense of unfairness and indignation than the feeling of having been gaslit, which— I don't think he's been intentionally gaslit, but he has been led astray. I mean, that's what struck me so much is that this is going right back to all caps Harry from book five. We've seen him process that pain to some extent, but a moment like this just like pulls him straight back there where he's overwhelmed by it. Can I talk? I'm not sure how this is about indignation, but there was just such a striking moment to me in this chapter, which is when Dumbledore is making Harry promise that he will listen to him. And we know what's coming. It just, oh. But even if you don't know what's coming, I just find it so beautiful and so, like, maternal or parental of, like, promise me, like, repeat it back to me. You will leave me. Your safety is the priority and I am in charge. I do think he was doing some really important teaching by saying, like, remember, I got this from the memory. I figured this out. Now come alongside me and watch how I do it. But I'm going to try to protect you as much as I can. It was a moment where I felt like Dumbledore was really shining. Well, and it's reciprocated. 
because at the very end of the chapter, you know, Harry is giving Felix Felices to Ron and Hermione and they're like, no, you need it. You're going to go kill this Horcrux. And he says, I'll be fine. I'll be with Dumbledore. It just sends shivers down my spine because even, even amidst this betrayal, even amidst this indignation, there's this trust and this knowing that one is safe with the other that is really special. Naive, but special. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, breaks my heart. This week, we are practicing Pardes for the last time in a little while. And I've chosen a sentence that actually kind of follows on nicely from where we were in our theme conversation, because it's the moment where... Harry is traveling with Dumbledore and Dumbledore has asked him, can you operate? And Harry's like, well, I don't have a license. And so there's this moment where they need to hold one another, their physical bodies. And so the sentence I've chosen, it's really a piece of a sentence, is there is no need to grip too hard. There's no need to grip too hard. So Vanessa, let's start with the pshat. What's the literal meaning of this sentence? So the pshat is that, you know, because Harry doesn't have a license and doesn't really confidently know how to operate. They have to do sidelong operation, and Dumbledore is saying, it's fine, you can hold on to my arm, but you don't have to grip too hard, which is literally maybe because Dumbledore's arm is injured and, like, maybe it it hurts to have it grip too hard. And also, Harry is, like, capable of doing apparition. He needs a little less guidance. It's like helping a baby learn how to walk when they can pretty much walk and you're just sort of there behind them making sure that they don't bite it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it also reveals to me that the last time they did this, Harry was hurting Dumbledore. It it speaks to Dumbledore's weakness, but also this history that they have. Yeah. So Vanessa, let's go to the second step of Pardes, which is remes. And this is where we choose one word in the snippet that we've chosen and try and connect it to all these other places where that word or that theme shows up in the books. So what would you like to choose? I'll give you the sentence once more. There is no need to grip too hard. I think we should do grip because two immediately came to mind. Ooh, okay, what you got? The power that Harry feels the first time he grips a broom, that it feels right in his hand. Mm -hmm. And then also there's grip hook, the Goblin. The goblin. Who ends up being like this completely necessary, although complicated ally in book seven. That's so interesting. Well, I'm also thinking of Hagrid because at the very beginning of the whole books, right when he leaves baby Harry on the doorsteps of the Dursley home, McGonagall says to Hagrid, like, get a grip, which is, it's kind of cruel, but there's something about Hagrid, which is like, ungripped in the, in the sense that he's, you know, a little not controlled, whether it's his kind of love for dangerous things or, or his drinking issue. He also grips his umbrella tightly, like holding on to his vestige of illegal magical power. And I'm thinking about the way, you know, going back to the sentence, the way in which Hagrid grips to Dumbledore, right? Like Dumbledore is this place of safety and meaning and importance in Hagrid's life, which is honestly unsurpassed. Just the, the complete trust to follow Dumbledore's directions, right? Going to the giants. So I'm thinking of Hagrid with that word as well. I love Hagrid. Any other grips? I was thinking that Hermione grips onto the library, right? That Mm. like she grips onto books that when in doubt, 
like, I can figure something out and go to the library. I think we're seeing that everybody has something that they're gripping on to, right? Everybody white knuckles something. Yeah, and that's definitely true. I mean, it's embodied physically here for Harry and Dumbledore, but it's also true of Harry and Dumbledore generally, but in kind of in both ways, right? Like Harry is Dumbledore's last hope so that they're gripping onto one another in this beautiful but also challenging way. So let's let's move to the drush. So now we ask ourselves, if this was the piece of text that we were preaching on, what's a message that we would try and extract from this piece of text? I think I would preach on the the virtues of holding things loosely. I don't think we should be letting go of our Dumbledores or Mm. our libraries or, you know, like we need each other. And I like admitting that. Mm. But I think if you're holding on to something too tightly, you're choking it or you're hurting it. And I guess also if you're holding on to something too tightly, there isn't room in your hands for anything else. Like if you're truly gripping something, nothing else fits. And so, yeah, I I think I would use it as an invitation to imagine what it is that I could hold looser in my life. Well, I think we'd make a good preaching team because I think what I would say is kind of part B (laughs) to that, which is, and we're human and gripping is human. I mean, I think that's what makes us human is that we want to hold on to each other, right? Like that's part of... I know loving is being willing to let go, but like loving is also like not letting go, right? That's why I hate that scene in Titanic where Rose is just like, yeah, no, there's only space for me on this piece of wood. See you later, Jack. You opened my life and my whole sexuality has been awakened, but now you need to like freeze in the ocean. So all of which is to say, I feel like, like, let's not beat ourselves up, right? If we're gripping, like that's just, that's just part of what it is to be alive. (laughs) You're just disagreeing with me. Great. So that brings us to the final step in our Pardes practice, which is to to look for the sowed. This is the secret that's hidden somewhere in the text or around it, which will emerge to someone. And we always like to say, it might not emerge to us and it might emerge to you. So I'll read the sentence once again, and we'll just take a moment to see if a sowed arrives. There is no need to grip too hard. The thing that strikes me is that Dumbledore knows he's dying. And so this is as much about his hand and his arm as it is about holding on to Dumbledore. And he's not saying, don't grip, right? He's not saying, don't love me, don't want me to stay. But he's also saying, like, there's no need to grip too hard, that you'll be okay when I'm gone. What occurred to me is that I always think it's interesting what we think we need that we don't need. Hmm. And so I guess I find it to be lovely that Dumbledore is like, you think you need to hold on tight, but you don't need to hold on tight. Mm. And we all just start getting wrapped up in things that are necessities in our lives that we can actually let go of. I mean, Ariana and I were just talking about like academic achievements, right? Like you think you need a certain GPA and it's like you don't need that. Like that is not a pressure that you need. I need to do well on this. Or I just like the idea of somebody sort of standing next to you and being like, you don't need that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Vanessa. Thank you for leading that so beautifully. Our voicemail this week is from Christy. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name's Christy. I am a new listener, but I cannot stop listening to the podcast. I just got to book two, chapter 15, 
when Casper at the end blesses the car, the Fort Anglia, for saving Harry and Ron in the forest from Aragog and all of his creepy spider children. But it really struck me reading or listening, I guess, to Casper is that the car is imbued with all of those amazing traits of bravery and selflessness because it was enchanted by Arthur Weasley. So we know that the car was his passion project. And it just really struck me in that moment that the car is this manifestation of Arthur's love. And I love the parallel that this muggle artifact is what saves Ron and Harry. I mean, even though it is enchanted, it still symbolizes Arthur's love and the Weasley's tolerance and love for muggles and their sort of rejection of their pure blood status. I thought that was super interesting that when these two young wizards were in need, a muggle artifact is what saves the day. Um, also, I'm a painter, so it really made me think about how the love and passion and care that we put into the things that we create can have an impact on other people that we maybe don't even know. I just really love that as a thought, and I hope that I can put as much love into my work as Arthur Weasley put into that Ford Anglia car. Um, I'm also wondering what other creations that you guys have seen in the book so far that have had an impact like this. Uh, Horcruxes come to mind as a negative example of putting care or putting energy out into the world, but I'm sure there are tons of positives in these books as well um, that maybe you guys have found. Uh, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts and thanks for the podcast. It's amazing. You guys are amazing. Bye. Christy, I love your voicemail and not just because you're enjoying the podcast, but I think this is what I love most about the magical world because the whole premise of magic is things are not just what they seem. This wall is actually the entry into Diagon Alley. This wand has all of these powers that can come through it or out of it, that the world is enchanted and it just takes a different viewpoint to see it as such. And I, I love that you shared that memory of Arthur being the one who's enchanted the car in the first place. A, because it invites us to always look with curiosity to see, well, how did this become meaningful or interesting or powerful? Or, you know, there's, there's always somewhere where it's come from. But also, as you said, because that seemingly kind of silly hobby of Arthur's of caring about sockets and electrical plugs ends up actually doing something that is life-saving for Harry and Ron. Yeah, who knows what our joyful hobbies and pleasurable explorations end up meaning for other people. I love that. Yeah, I love, you know, I would like to think of myself as a not super materialistic person, but I also know that I'm someone who values certain objects a great deal. I am lucky enough to have my grandmother's mezuzah, like, in my doorframe, and I love it and think of my grandma like every time I walk into my house. And so much of a lot of my time in synagogue as a kid was spent braiding on prayer shawls, tzitzit, they're like um, fringe. And I spent like so much time braiding and unbraiding my dad's like the fringe to his prayer shawl. And so, you know, these religious objects are imbued with like a magic of their own in terms of their symbolism of what they mean within a religion. And then there's even more specificity in the ones that like you grew up with. And especially when those items get handed down. So many people have, whether it's a prayer shawl or a Bible or, or a beautiful picture, you know, I, I have a piece of ceramic art that my grandmother made, right? Those, those things when they're given by the people who we come from just become all the more meaningful. Yeah. So Casper, it's now time for us to each offer a blessing. And I am going to bless Romilda Vane. <laughs> yes. Who, you know, love potion 
Ron tried to love Potion Harry. Like, I do not approve of all of Romilda's choices. But what I do <laughs> approve of is that, like, Dementors are attacking and war is starting. And she is like, does Harry have a tattoo? And <laughs> I just think that, like, superfluous silliness can get us through hard times. You know, it used to be a thing that skirts got shorter during wartime and like musical theater always comes back into vogue during wartime Mm. and I think that we need silliness in order to deal with tragedy and Romilda Vane is there worrying about things that matter Harry's tattoos (laughs) um what about you Casper who would you like to bless I want to bless Dumbledore I was so struck in this chapter that You know, he's dealing with a drunk Trelawney. He's invited Snape on as staff, even though he knows all of the things Snape has done and how he's contributed to to the death of Harry's parents. And it just made me think that when you're in power, you don't get to be pure. When you're responsible, you do the best you can, even though you know it's not perfect. And I, I guess this blessing is for anyone who is in a position of responsibility and of power and who knows the decisions they make, the institutions they run, that they're not perfect, but... It's not just that someone has to do that job, but would you want anyone else than Dumbledore as headmaster? I mean, McGonagall, yes. But it's hard. It's hard to have that level of responsibility. And so I guess I just want to I just want to bless Dumbledore for doing the best he can, because it's better than I would do. Amen. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you don't have a local group near you, although there are now 68, so probably you do, join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this and every episode. Or come and join the amazing group of people supporting us on Patreon. It's what helps the podcast keep going. You can also send us a voicemail or leave a review on iTunes. I read every one. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 26, The Cave, through the theme of persistence. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Christy for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. One of our local groups, Lecto, Lect, I forgot how to say Lectio. Lectio de, I can't say it. Lectio de Vienna. Lecto de Vienna. Are you laughing at me? I can't, I don't know how to stop. You do it, please.